Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, a little story time that I'm just excited about. Uh, so we've got a bunch of people in Costa Rica right now, which is awesome. Uh, but that's all of my elders, Betsabe and Rick. And then we had people get sick today, including Kristen, and her husband, Eric, is taking care of him. That's Eric's dad. Uh, which is like the senior level voice. Uh, Peter, I didn't tell you this. We literally joke about your son having the voice of God. Uh, and we now know where it comes from. Uh, Peter was in radio, and I think that was pretty clearly. So, Peter, thank you for stepping in today. We had a lot of people literally go down. Uh, Sherry, Kristen's mom, has been helping out with the volunteer stuff. So it's just one big all-in-the-family day at Axe Church Leander. Uh, we're going to start off with some prayer, though, and we'll go from there. Uh, God, you are good. God, I thank you uh, for writing the, the book of 1 Corinthians through Paul to this early church in Corinth. Lord, as we continue to unpack what that looks like and what that means for our lives, I pray that you speak. I pray that you help us draw closer to you, draw closer to each other. Lord, and certainly as we reflect on what marriage means and what you've given it to us for, Lord, I pray that you speak mightily. We say that's all in your son's precious name. Amen. So we are continuing our series, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Corinth, Texas. Let's see if this is going to work for me. Yes, there we go. And there actually is a Corinth, Texas. But the reason why we called it this isn't because it was originally written to Corinth, Texas or Leander, Texas, but instead because so many of the main aspects of 1 Corinthians, the themes directly affect what it means for us as Christians as well. But I'm going to be honest with you, 1 Corinthians 7, for a long time, was one of the scariest sections of Scripture that I had read. And, and to understand why, we needed to jump in the way back machine. I actually did the numbers on this. I was 17 years old when this memory happened. That's 21 years ago. I'm 38 now. This memory is old enough to drink. All right. 21 years ago, I was 17 years old, I had just started to own my faith. And what I mean by that was I grew up in the church, I knew the prayers, I had gone through confirmation, I would go to Bible schools in the summer, but it wasn't until I was 16 or 17 where the faith really became my own, right? Where it wasn't my parents' faith that I believed, it was really this, my own foundation that I was building on, and I got on fire for Jesus. And in my senior year, I met a friend named Eric Chang. Now, Eric is great. We are still best friends today. And Eric's theme song for all of our lives was, anything you can do, I can do better, right? Eric was the valedictorian. Eric was the all-state swimmer. Eric was the all-state water polo champion. Eric was Superman living incarnate. And then there was me, who was none of those things, right? Uh, just that was not me. And yet, Eric, at the same time, also was making his faith his own, and so we really bonded over our young Christian journey together. And we would go to church, and our church had a pool table in it. I had keys to the church. I don't know why they had given me keys. Some horrible things could have happened. The church never burnt down, though. We survived that. And we'd shoot pool late at night, and I remember where I was standing when he asked me this question. He said, Josh, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? And he just stopped. And I knew exactly, that moment in time, I knew exactly what he was going to say next. And I said, yes, Eric, I have read 
1 Corinthians. And he goes, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? And I said, seven? And he's like, yes, seven. And I'm like, I know, it's terrifying, isn't it? And it's this verse right here. Verse number one. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. As a 17-year-old hormonal man, this verse was terrifying, right? And it was terrifying for me, and it was terrifying for Eric, because we, right, we're growing up, we, we're starting to like girls, we're talking about dating, and then you've got Paul saying explicitly, now for the matters that I wrote to you about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and my gosh, did we not know what to do with this section of Scripture. And this is important, not just as a joke, not just as a, a one-off, but there's some deeper stuff that's going on here, not just in the verse, but how we look at Scripture overall. And so I want to dive into that so we can understand what Paul is writing to the church about and what that means for their faith, what that means for our faith. So rule number one about how do we interpret Scripture, how do we apply Scripture to our lives, there are two words I want you to say with me. Exegesis. Say exegesis. Exegesis. Hermeneutics. Say hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. All right? These two things are key. Rule number one to understanding what Scripture is trying to do. Exegesis is a big word that means what did the original author intend? So before we can understand what the Bible means for me, we need to understand what the original author, who is Paul, intended. What was his original point he was writing to the church about 2,000 years ago? That's called exegesis. One more time, exegesis, okay? I don't care if you remember the word itself, but I need you to remember as we talk about how to read your Bible as a church that I want you all to be literate in Scripture. Exegesis is critical to understanding first what did Paul originally mean, which then leads us to hermeneutics, which means how do I apply that truth to my life? Because if we don't get that right, what ends up happening is we can take all types of Scripture out of context and try to apply it to our lives. And I mean, that's how denominations break up. That's how cults begin. They take one verse out of context. They don't look at the exegesis, the original intention. And then they say, this is what this means for you. But as Christians... When we have these challenging texts, that's one of the ways we have to do it, exegesis. And the second thing, second rule, is let the larger narratives provide context and framing for problem texts. And what I mean by problem texts isn't that they shouldn't be in Scripture. But sometimes there are verses where if read in isolation can really throw off the larger narrative of what God is trying to do. And again, we, we, we get into some really weird territory when we let the exception frame the rest of Scripture as opposed to letting the rest of Scripture, the larger context of what God is trying to do, what God is trying to teach us, when we don't let those frame these more problematic niche texts. And, and both of those two things are going to be critical Certainly as we look through all of the book of Corinthians, certainly as we look through all of the Bible, but specifically today when Paul is writing to the church and he says, now of the matters I wrote to you about, it, it's not good to do this thing. 
And what we're going to find is that there is some context there, some exegesis, that if we don't get this first, we get the rest of Scripture wrong. I just want to jump down a few verses in 1 Corinthians 7 that give us context of what Paul is writing to you about, writing to me about. Verse 26, he says something. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Because of the present crisis. This is the context that the entire book of Corinthians is built around. And this line that he literally says is why I'm saying right now it may be good for us to calm it on the more intimate stuff between a man and a woman. That's this present crisis. And we don't know specifically what that crisis was, but we know early Christianity had a rolling system, a rolling problem with persecution, where depending on who was in charge of the government, but trending on which Caesar was in power, some let Christians kind of do their own thing, live and let live, and other times, Nero specifically, there would be these huge waves of persecutions where they would literally throw us into gladiator pits to be eaten by lions, where it was illegal to gather as Christians. And so there was these rolling persecutions that were coming out, so we don't know if it's that, we don't know if there was a famine in the city or if there was some type of plague, but there is some crisis that is happening. And Paul is saying, hey, right now in this crisis, maybe everybody should just kind of bunker down for a little bit. And, and that's the context that starts off verse 1. But then he even unpacks that, and what we see is that sometimes there isn't one right answer. And so understanding the larger narrative of what God is up to allows us to apply doing the best next thing we can as we live out this life. And so we're now going to unpack 1 Corinthians 7 and the major themes, because there are some big things that are happening here. In verses 2 to 5, Paul actually references the larger narrative of why God created husbands and wife. I just, I just want to read this to you. Verses 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. See, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. So do not deprive each other except by perhaps mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What is Paul saying here? He is referencing a deep truth about what God is calling marriages to be about. It's calling us to be about the other person. And he's referencing a sexual nature here, but this is holistically what marriage is meant to be. This is the original narrative in the book of Genesis. I had one of those aha moments this week as I was thinking through marriage and what marriage is meant to be, what relationships are meant to be in the garden. Humanity gets three gifts in the garden. And what I realized this week were all of them were selfless gifts. 
Think about it. God creates the world day after day after day. He says it's good, it's good, it's good. And then Scripture says in Genesis chapter 1, God created man and woman together. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Go out into the world and take care of it. Three things happen there, and all three of them take us out of ourselves. First, God says, I'm going to create man and woman to complete one another to be compatible with one another, to be helpmates to one another, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. But that means that you're going to think outside of yourself, that we yield our authority, that we yield ourselves to this other person. It is a selfless act to get married. That's what God wants in marriage, is for someone else to be able to watch your back and for you to watch someone else's back. So often in our world today, and certainly throughout all of history, we turn marriage into about ourselves, right? It's about what makes me happy. I like this person, and so we should get married because it's about me, but what we see in Scripture, what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is no, relationships are actually about the other person. And then the second gift, having kids be fruitful and multiply, there are few things more selfless than having a child right? You pour into them. When they're a baby and they can't give you anything back, when they can't provide for you or they can't do the chores yet, we, we pour into them selflessly. And then God says, and I'm going to create this world for you, this garden for you, and you're going to work and take care of it. It is a selfless act, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is all about God creating humanity as individuals and then giving us community in this selfless way of living. And so Paul writes to the couples and he says, y'all belong to one another. And, and notice how there's, there's no hierarchy here, right? He doesn't say the wife yields her body to her husband and then move on to another topic. Instead, he says, no, you yield to one another. You're called to be selfless to one another. And that, that, that becomes the foundation in Christ that how we have relationships, and quite frankly, not just as marriages, but with all people. That's what God is calling us with, with our brothers and our sisters, with our church family, with our neighbor, with our coworkers. To get back into the garden means that we change our framework of how we see relationships. And so Paul writes to the church, he goes, guys, it's about giving to the other person, emotionally, physically, yes, sexually, but holistically, leaning in and saying, no, I'm going to be about you and you're going to be about me. And then the cool thing about that is there's a blessing that as I pour myself into someone else and as someone else is committed to pouring themselves into me, I've got someone watching my back. I've got someone caring for me. Erica is the emotional bouncer of my life, and it's amazing, right? She's the one who keeps me when I want to just keep pouring myself out or I want to do something stupid, and she's like, I care about you, so please don't do this. Having someone in my life to do that, having someone who can watch me and encourage me and nurture me, and then that I can, in turn, try to encourage and nurture and bring out the best in. That, that's the larger narrative that Paul is referencing to the Corinthian church, which then brings us to the, the second thing that he talks about is on divorce. 
And we look at verses 10, 11, and 12, and he goes, guys, divorce is never God's plan. Right? Divorce is something that sin came up with. We talk a lot about sin, but sin, all it knows how to do is destroy relationships, right? It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with each other. It destroys our relationship with our world. So it makes sense that sin would come into marriages, and as instead of pouring out, we turn in on ourselves, that, that's the nature of it. Every divorce somewhere along the line had sin ripping apart a relationship. And so Paul writes to the church, like, y'all, that, that's not God's plan. And then he also realizes, and we live in a world that's full of things that are not God's plan. And so he says, if, if someone forces it on you, or if there's a situation you're in that this is not sustainable, right? He's like, there, there's grace here. And so in this, it becomes messy. And he says, guys, remain married. Guys, continue to pour yourself out, but it also allows for space of, and if the other person just cuts you off, says, well, that's going to happen, and yet God is still there. And I just want, I want to just read these words. I say this as a concession, not as command. Uh, verse 6, I wish all of you were as I am. Sorry, verse 10. Okay, to the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife not, must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, and again, right, so don't get divorced. To the rest I say, if a brother has a wife who is not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband will be sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul is not saying that we get saved through someone else's faith, but he's saying, hey, if you can stay in that relationship, if the unbeliever, if that brokenness, if they're willing to walk with you, guess what? Something holy is still in that marriage. Not necessarily that you're holy specifically, or I as pastor am holy, but because we are a part of the church, because we are part of the body of Christ, God can still work in that situation. But, verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. So God has called us to live in peace. However, how do you know your wife, whatever uh, you say, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And Paul writes, and he's like, it's messy, y'all. But marriage is still an area where God allows us to reflect and to walk with one another. And when we start from the foundation of it's about me pouring myself into someone else, and then for that person to pour themselves back into me, that, that, that's where the good stuff is. That's where the magic happens. That's where relationships are redeemed, and, and we nurture because we're being nurtured. And then, what we had in our scripture reading today, Paul transitions to his emphasis on, but whatever situation you are in, have the focus of the kingdom. And that's really what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's trying to help them see themselves not just in, in their present condition. Okay, I've got to go pay my mortgage today. The, the water line broke. The uh, 
my, my, my kid's got the sniffles. We have to do all those things. Paul doesn't say not to do them, but he says frame them in the eyes of the kingdom. And Paul says, and I wish all of you could be like me, who, and Paul says, has the gift of singleness. That, that where his mind is at, where his season is at, that that singleness allows him to focus on the kingdom. And, and personally, I actually know what that's like. So I'm coming on my 11th year as a pastor. I started uh, July 31st, 2017. We are now in 23. So 11 years I have been a pastor. In the first five, I was single. Eric and I were dating for about four years. But my first five years of ministry, my gosh, did I have free time for ministry. I was so quote-unquote productive. If you wanted to meet Monday through Friday for three, uh, three hours every week, I had the time to do that, right? Because I was single. I didn't have any obligations. I didn't have any kids. All the time in the world to devote to ministry. But that wasn't always healthy. And in fact, it wasn't until Erica and I started dating where she was able to look and say, Josh, it seems like you're burning yourself out. Every Sunday, for three years, I would do morning service at a church about 20 miles south of Madison, Wisconsin, where I would preach and lead worship, so I would be the singer and the preacher. I would go home, I would take a nap for two hours, and then I would go and reboot myself to then do church planting work in Madison, Wisconsin, and run an entirely separate service. So it wasn't like I was preaching the same message at both places. I literally would do two completely different churches. And I did that for three years. And every Sunday, I would come home just completely and totally exhausted. And we would watch something. We'd watch Chuck a lot. And I remember Erica just looking and saying, like, sweetie, I love you. I don't think this is sustainable. And she was right. And it wasn't until someone was able to speak that into my life where I was like, oh, oh, this is what it means to be in a relationship with someone who, who can pour into me and I, I can pour into them. And so there are seasons of singleness, and they are a gift to have that time, to have maybe additional financial resources or emotional bandwidth to be able to pour into the not pure larger kingdom, but, but just looking at everything through God's eyes and opportunities that it might arise. Because as we have families, as we have kids, our bandwidth shrinks. But that's a gift as well, and that's a season as well. And so what we see here in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul allowing for the mess that is the world, right? Allowing for the mess in our own lives and saying sometimes you're going to have this gift and sometimes you're going to have this gift, but look at it through the eyes of the kingdom. Verses 21 and following. You were a slave in your call, don't let it trouble you. Although if you gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave, uh, when faith is called in the Lord, is uh, Lord's free person. And similarly, the one who was free when is called is now Christ's slave. You were bought at a price, he says, so do not become slaves to human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when they, call, when they were called. Paul writes and says, y'all, you don't have to be on the rat race anymore. You, you no longer have to be angling for that next promotion 24-7 because that's where you get your status. That's what you get your identity. And so he says, no, your identity is in Christ. 
And so you're free in Christ, and yet you're a slave, you're a servant to the larger kingdom and what God is doing. Which then leads us to this last section of Scripture. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you this as a judgment for the one whose mercy is trustworthy. Because of this present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to be a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if the virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life. And I want you to spare this from you. Last truth that I think is really helpful for us as Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as Paul's like, guys, sometimes there's not a perfect choice. Do you ever get frozen by that? I've got to take the perfect job, right? I've got to marry the perfect person. I, I have to go to the perfect school. And we, and we get in our heads that, like, there is this ideal thing that I have to shoot for. And what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is sometimes it's just messy. Should I get married or not get married? Yes. Which is hard, right? Because sometimes we want the figure eight ball. God, just tell me, shake it up. Do, do I marry this person or do I not? Do we go and we move to this place or do we not? Do we? And Paul says, y'all, it's, it, it's a present time. There's a lot going on. And sometimes there's no perfect answer. And yet, when we live within the narrative of Scripture that can then guide us to, okay, does this choice, does one of these choices take me out of the narrative? Like, God, I'm dating this person. We seem to be caring for one another. This seems to be going well. Fits within Genesis chapter 1, gender 2. Great, run it. All right, God, uh, there's this job, and there's some good stuff about it. There's some bad stuff about it. I may have some more resources. I may have some more time. I may have less time, but it may open a door. Okay. 1 Corinthians 7 is messy. First Corinthians 7, Paul allows the church to realize, y'all, this is some broken stuff. But the good news is that God is gracious. The good news is that God is still calling us back into Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2. And he's inviting us to participate. And whatever place that we are in right now, you're okay. If you're single, if you're married, if, if you're divorced, God looks and he's like, I- I'm there with you. You're never alone. You're never out of God's plan. And that's good news. And that's news that we can apply to our own lives. Let's pray. God, uh, this is a church. We've got a lot of families, got a lot of marriages. And we got a lot of people from the island of misfit toys. <laughs> uh, Lord, myself at the front of that line. Lord, we're, we don't have perfect relationships and we, uh, we, we, we don't have foundations that are always built on I'm going to pour myself into someone else and they're going to pour themselves back into me. Lord, it's countercultural. And, it, and it's counter our sinful nature, Lord, that all of us are still wrestling with. Lord, so we come before you as husbands or as wives. We come before you as sons and daughters of you, a good God. And we confess that we have not been perfect in these relationships, Lord, that we have let our own selfishness, our own wrong choices, the best thinking that gets in the way of what you want to do. 
Lord, uh, break relationships. And Lord, we come before you in confession, but we are bold to confess because your word says that when we confess, you are righteous and just and you forgive us our sins. Lord, that you not only forgive us, Lord, you restore us and you seek us out to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Lord, and I pray that you help us reconcile ourselves back to you, reconcile us back into right relationship with those who you have placed in our lives. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. We continue with worship. <laughs>